1 Samuel chapter 13. You know, a lot of times pastors, they end up teaching on topics in which they have very little experience. They just don't know much about certain themes and topics. And so you have to, as a pastor, you have to read a lot of books or have a lot of conversations because you just don't really have that much experience in it. But I'm glad to inform you today that our topic is one in which I have extensive firsthand knowledge. Today we're going to talk about bad choices. <laughs> so I'm titling this message, How to Not Make Bad Choices. In this season, we're going to look through the life of two kings in the Old Testament, King Saul and King David. And we're really looking at how people change, for better or for worse, how what you believe shapes the person that you become. And this fall, we not only want you to have a vision for what God is doing in the world, but a vision for what God is wanting to do in your own soul. So today we're going to look at the life of Saul. Next week, we're going to look at David and Goliath. It's going to be super encouraging. But today, we're going to look at Saul. And it's going to be a bit of a warning. 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 through 15. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Mishmash in the hill of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand, which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Mishmas east of beth When the men of Israel saw that, they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold... Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have you establish your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is God's word. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. And we just want to begin by recognizing that we are so prone to bad choices. It may even be that some of us are on the verge of making them even now. Or maybe we have already begun down a path of bad choices. But all of us recognize that we all have the temptation. And so we're asking today that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that your Spirit would reveal what is in our hearts, knowing that you do not do so in order to condemn us, but to heal us. And so we ask together as a church, heal us, God. Help us to be men and women who are wise. Help us to be men and women who are obedient. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, we ask that they would see who you are, what you have done for them, that they might believe. We ask it together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Well, it was written only 100 years ago, but it is now considered a classic. The book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, is actually a story of a young man whose desire to stay young and beautiful leads him to make a wish. A wish that, to his surprise, it becomes true. He will not age, but a special painting of him will. And yet, something terrifying happened. The portrait painted of him, it didn't only age, it became disfigured. He would go out on the town, he'd go out, and he would make all kinds of bad choices, And he would come back to find that the painting had not only aged, it had become grotesque. And so throughout the story, his worship of pleasure and his contempt and hatred for other people would slowly cause the portrait to become more and more corrupt until he realized that though he remained outwardly beautiful, the painting reflected that he was inwardly broken. He was inwardly broken. And the point of the story is this. The painting did not create the corruption. The painting revealed his corruption. Church, the question I have for you this morning is this. If you and I had a portrait painted of our hearts, a portrait of our interior lives, what would it reveal? If it reflected our choices, would it shock us? For this is what we find in Saul. Saul's life, as we study it, will act as a type of mirror, revealing if there is any corruption in our own hearts. When we read this chapter, we have a king. Israel's first king. His debut was solid. He was praised by the people for a great victory in the first few years of his career. Looks like everything's going well. In fact, as we learned last week, we're told in the Bible that he's good-looking, he's super tall, and on the surface, he's God-fearing. Seems like his career is set for him. And yet, over the course of his life, when you read through the story, you find that he becomes paranoid, he becomes jealous, and he becomes violent, even towards his own family members. And here in chapter 13, 
we see Saul making bad choices in a desperate moment. But like the picture of Dorian Gray, these desperate moments don't create Saul's corruption. These moments reveal Saul's corruption. Now, it's very easy to look at a person like Saul, and our immediate response is, no way, not me. You look at the life of Saul, some of you might have even studied the life of Saul, and you know that over and over again, he makes these terrible choices, and you're reading it in your devotion, you're like, well, good thing that's not me. But you do realize, church, that everybody says that. Everyone says that. They look at Saul and they go, no, not me. I was um, with a pastor friend a little while back, and I was talking to him about how I was not a control freak. And he looked at me and said, you know, only control freaks say that, right? Like, you're totally in denial. It's like, no, I'm not. Wait, ah, I'm a control freak. See, one of the themes in Saul's life is that he's constantly in denial about what's going on in his heart. And this serves as a warning sign for you and I. Could it be that we are in denial about our own choices? Now, on the outside, we're all different people in this room. And our decisions on the surface, they're going to differ. Even our bad ones are going to look very different. But on the inside, listen, the Bible tells us that we all share the same problem. We all have this capacity to deceive ourselves, to make bad choices. And I want to talk today about why that is and what we need to experience healing from it. So I want to give you three points today. I want to talk about how we make bad choices, why we make bad choices, and the remedy for our bad choices. We have a lot more to learn from Saul than you think. So what do we learn about his desperate moment? First of all, in Saul, we learn how we make bad choices. Ruling for about a year now, King Saul comes fresh off the heels of a great victory. Although actually, it was his son, Jonathan's victory, he was just taking the credit for it. It's like a common pattern in his life, and maybe, maybe some of us. His job as a king was to serve and to rescue the people, and now in chapter 13, they face an enormous threat from the Philistines, a ruthless people group that is committed to horrible acts. And so they gathered to fight against Israel. They had thousands of chariots, which would be like the ancient equivalent of tanks. And the people of Israel were told they were freaked out because they were outnumbered. And soldiers began to flee. They began to hide in thickets and in caves. And Saul was caught in a desperate moment. And he makes choices. But what is it that made them bad? What is it that made them bad? See, at first, we kind of sympathize with Saul because you and I know what it's like to be in a desperate moment. You're like, oh gosh, there's so much, there's so much pressure. Like, I just got to do what I got to do. I got to take matters into my own hand. We sympathize with Saul. But notice, the person we're looking at, he wasn't a blatant unbeliever. He was someone who claimed to know and follow God. And yet what appears to be minor mistakes are actually deliberate decisions away from God. Saul was made Israel's first king under very clear terms that he could only be able to serve the people if he served under God. We learned about that last week. 
How vital it is. How it, how it is that God wants all of us to come under his gracious governance. And it is from that place that we experience great health. It is from that place that we really learn to use our gifts. And in this particular circumstance, in this situation, Saul was given very specific instructions. He had been told by God through a prophet in the previous chapter, two things. Saul I want you to put soldiers in place. And number two, I want you to wait for Samuel the prophet. Not complicated. Two things. Put soldiers in place and wait for for Samuel. Saul, you're going to be in charge of the battle. But Samuel is going to pray and seek direction from me. Saul, you need to wait for him. Saul knew on this day that he was not a priest. And that it was unlawful for him To make a sacrifice. That job belonged exclusively to the priest. And friends, what I want you to see here, if this is the first time you're reading this, you think, what's the big deal? This is no technical violation. It is outright disobedience to what God's word said. No one but the priest would sacrifice. So seven days pass. From verses 8 to 12, we begin to see Saul as a model of how bad choices are made. First of all, if you want to make bad choices, view inactivity as God's failure. This is so easy to do. We have all kinds of assumptions about how God should work and when God should work. We have our own time schedule and we want God to be on it. We're like, God, I've got this perfect plan for your life. I've typed it out, printed it out in a PDF, sending it to heaven so, just so that you can keep track on your progress and your involvement in my life according to my plan. Let's face it, all of us do that. We have these assumptions. And so we easily jump to conclusion that when we don't see activities going the way in which we want them, we often conclude that God has failed. I'll be honest, it takes me about two minutes to get there. Flat tire, God hates me. That check didn't come through. Is there a God? I don't know. Everything's in question. We just jump to these conclusions like, God, where were you? Or in your own prayers, have you ever given God an ultimatum? God, I'm putting my foot down. If you don't come through for me by 12.15 tomorrow, you're in for it. Oh, yeah, we're going to have a talk. Isn't that crazy? We sometimes talk to God like that. Now Saul, here, he waited till the seventh day and he said, well, if God's prophet isn't going to make it happen, I'm going to make it happen. Because he was viewing inactivity as God's failure. And this is the very beginning of how we tend to make bad choices. Now the irony, of course, is that Samuel shows up immediately. I picture Saul in mid-sacrifice. He like lights the fire and he's like, oh, I gotta do this. And Samuel's like, oh, wow, you're doing my job. He's like, well, which leads to the second thing, justify your own position. What is, what's Saul's attitude? Is Saul immediately repentant as all of us should be? No, he justifies his own position. When Samuel the prophet shows up and he asks Saul what in the world is going on, in verse 11, Saul offers an excuse. He offers an excuse. 
He said, well, you know, the people, and this was happening, and, you know, I just, I just had to do it. What Saul is doing here is something that all of us are capable of doing. People call it perspective switching. Have you ever been, um, have you ever wanted to make a decision, and you, you know that it's probably not the best decision, but you have all these godly men and women around you in the coastlands, and so you go to them and you say, hey, I'm thinking about making this decision. And your godly friends say, that is a terrible decision. And you're like, mm, I don't like you. Like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm going to call another friend who's kind of backsliding. And I think they're going to give me really good advice. And they'll tell you, hey, do what your heart tells you. Just go for it, man. You only live once. Like, do it. And you're like, I like your perspective. <laughs> See, we, we tend to cherry pick what we want to hear in order to fit within our own position. And this is exactly what Saul does. And it is very often what we do. We disregard the view of others when there's another one that's more attractive. As a pastor, I've sat down with, with men and women who are having, you know, getting ready to or have had an affair on their spouse, and they're sitting there trying to justify their position. They're saying, well, you know, I had to do it because my, you know, my needs aren't being met, and, you know, I don't think the Bible would ever tell me that, you know, like, I shouldn't just do whatever I want to do. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure the Bible says exactly that you can't do whatever it is that you want to do. I've had people literally say, the Bible doesn't tell me that I should deny myself and what I want? Like, no, wait, yet, yeah, no, Jesus actually said that very thing. <laughs> deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after him because your life is no longer your own. It's been bought at a price. But listen, all of us have inside of us a little lawyer, and that little lawyer is waiting to defend us. And whenever we're challenged, a mini trial takes place in our hearts and we never lose a case. Like I'm right for 25 reasons. If we want to do something badly enough, we will find all kinds of reasons. You'll go to the bookstore and be like, 20 reasons why you should have an affair. Great. I'm going to buy that book. Or maybe it is. Maybe some of you are saying, well, that's a pretty drastic example. Okay. Maybe God is calling you to forgive someone in this church. Forgive someone in your community. You know you should do it, but right now you are finding all kinds of reasons for why you shouldn't. God's been convicting you. The topic has come up again and again. And you're like, no, because they need to earn it. You know, God's forgiveness is free. Mine, it costs. And it costs dearly. I want people to perform penance. You know, I, I want them to earn it. And yet that could not be more unbiblical. And even now, Ever so subtly in your own heart, you're justifying your position. And Saul's life is a warning to us. Self-justification is like a gateway drug to a world of bad choices. Because once you've just justified it in your own mind, well, God has failed. God didn't come through and meet my needs. You know, God didn't bring through that paycheck, so I guess I have to steal. I need to do it. Did you notice what Saul said? He said, I forced myself. Did you, did you catch that? He said, I didn't want to sacrifice. I forced myself to do it. No, I don't want to disobey, but I, I'll take the hit. I'll sin. I'll do it. I, you know, we get all passive aggressive, you know, when we're disobeying. Like, oh, I had to do it. Find all kinds of reasons. And Saul, when confronted, he does not receive correction. He defends his position instead. And it all comes out in this conversation that takes place, which raises a question for you and I. 
will we receive correction? You do realize that one of the reasons God calls you to live in community as a church is so that you can both give and receive correction. We need it. Now, don't get me wrong. Correction is rarely enjoyable. I don't really know anyone who just loves to be told that they're wrong. Like, say it again. I'm wrong. You're wrong. Yes. Oh, it feels so good. It's like an adrenaline shot to my heart. I don't know anyone that's ever came up to me and say, I love being corrected. Usually, we get a little irritated. Someone's like, hey, dear brother. And you're like, oh, here we go. <laughs> anyone ever come up to you in the church? Oh, sister. You're like, yep, I'm getting rebuked right now. <laughs> Usually, when you're getting corrected, they start with brother or sister, j- just so you know. But in your own heart, you're like, gimme, 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 So the question, church, for us is, are we teachable people? We need correction. It's rarely enjoyable, but we need it. Or instead, do we just defend our position? That's what Saul did. What does that lead to the next step? You cross the boundaries. Because once you have set off in this direction, it seems ridiculous that anyone would ever challenge you. And here's the thing about bad choices. Each choice, each bad choice makes the next one easier. Well, I've defended my position, so I'm going to sin. I'm going to cross the boundaries. I'm going to do what I was originally told not to do because I've already justified it in my mind. So I'm going to cross the boundaries. And then what do you do if people confront you? If you want to keep making bad choices, shift the blame. Just shift the blame. Few things will make you feel better about bad choices than blame shifting. It's what Saul does. Like, yeah, I forced myself to do it. I mean, if you had been here, Samuel, I mean, it's actually your fault. The reason that I've done this is actually your fault. This sounds familiar. Blame shifting is a tool that we use to bury our conviction. And it sounds so familiar because we see men and women doing it all the time in the Bible. It even goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. Do you remember When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and Satan was there in the form of a serpent deceiving Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which God had forbidden them to do but Eve does it anyway and then Eve convinces Adam and then Adam partakes in it and when God confronts Adam, what does Adam say? It was the woman! Typical man, right? It was the woman you gave me! Actually, there's two blame shiftings there. Have you ever read that in Genesis? It was the woman you gave me. Eve, I mean, I could have traded her in for a different model, but you gave this woman to me. So what's Adam doing there at the very beginning of the Bible when sin comes into the world? He's shifting blame all over the place. How do we shift the blame in the church? As a cover-up for our own bad choices and our own sins? Well, I don't like the leadership of the church. Well, I don't like, you know, the church is different than it was two years ago. These people, well, they're not as spiritual. They don't listen. We make all kinds of excuses. But the Holy Spirit wants to open your eyes and see none of those things can bury the truth of our bad choice. And we must take responsibility for it. You know what some of us do? We blame our circumstances. Well, it was a hard season, so I had to sin. You know, the Bible says that you will never be in a position. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And with that temptation, God always provides what? A way of escape. You know what that verse means? It means you will never be in a position in your life where you have no choice but to sin. And yet that's often how we view it. Saul here makes several excuses for his actions, but none of this changes the fact of his disobedience. 
Listen, we all have, are free to make our choices, but we all must give an account to God. If God is real and if he has spoken, if he has given us his, his word, then there is right and wrong, that there is a way to live, that there are good and bad choices, that we can either live in obedience to God or disobedience from him. And so Samuel comes in like a painter. His words are like a brush. And with them, he paints for Saul what is going on beneath the surface. It's an intervention. And he leads us, secondly, to why we make bad choices. See, in the Bible, we're given two perspectives. There's the external and the internal. There's a perspective of man, and then there's the perspective of God. There's what you could see on the surface, and then the Bible also shows us what's going on beneath the surface. And so from Saul's excuse, we get his perspective, but through the prophet, we get God's perspective. Though we might blame shift or self-justify and pursue our own agenda, we often do it because the truth is painful and yet the truth is what we need. To live a spiritually healthy life, it involves honesty about our own hearts. And so God will use his word, the Holy Spirit will speak to you, he'll bring other people into your life. And depending on how we respond, it reveals what lies within. And Saul's excuses reveal what lies beneath the surface. And friends, it's important that we talk about this Because it's not enough just to deal with the surface level sin, we need to deal with the heart level issue. It's often been said, there's the sin, and then there's the sin underneath the sin. If you want to get rid of the spider webs, you've got to kill the spider. We need to deal with the source. And what was going on in Saul's heart? What did we learn about his life? That there was a distrust of God. We see it over and over again. And so often, this is the very motive that we have behind our own choices. We just don't trust that God's going to provide. Oh, God's not going to provide me a spouse, so I'm free to do whatever I want, you know, sexually. Or God's not going to provide this amount of money for me, so I'm totally justified to cheat on my taxes. What's underneath those bad choices? It's distrust. It's not as though Saul didn't know anything about God or God's word or God's ways. After all, the whole reason he got to be king was because of God's word. But it also reveals that there is a fear of losing power and position. Oh, dear. We don't really like to talk about this one. It's very humbling to admit how much we like position. Now, some of you say, well, I don't want to be a royal king. That may be so. But it may be that we love position in the church. It may be that we love position in the community or within our family. And what Saul does here is he essentially worships his position. His position as as king gave him identity. But he had forgotten, like we often do, that God is the one that gave it to him in the first place. He never earned it. It was a gift of God's grace. And it's so easy for us to go wrong like Saul. See, we Christians, we believe that everything that God has given us is nothing but grace. Amen? Your salvation, your gifts, like all that God has given you is nothing but grace. And yet we act so often as if it were based on our achievement. And that's why we begin to compare with one another. We begin to enter into subtle competition with one another in the church? Oh, why do they have all that stuff? Well, they've got a lot of blessings. I don't have that many blessings. We even compare, this is, isn't this hilarious? In the church, we even compare spiritual gifts. Even though they're totally from God, we subtly compare. And some of you know what I'm talking about. There are those men and women in the church who are super gifted in a more showy way. Maybe they have like the gift of prophetic words and prayer and everyone's like, oh my gosh. It's so powerful and amazing. And you, you have the gift of administration. (laughs) 
The gift of administration never gets all the applause that the more like showy speaking gifts do. And so maybe you're in a home group or a community group and somebody's speaking this powerful word and everybody in the group's like, oh my gosh, like that is so amazing, so powerful. And you're like, oh yeah, well you wouldn't be in this room if I didn't get here on time and unlock the door. (laughs) Your tummies wouldn't be full if I didn't make the casserole for community group. Gift of administration, people. And we begin to compare and contrast. And yet the Bible tells us that every gift we have is nothing but the grace of God. Why on earth would we compare? And yet the motive behind it is that we have this fear of losing some kind of position, power, and influence with other people. Why did Saul make this bad decision? Because he wanted to, he wanted to look good. Thirdly, he needed to keep up appearance. It's like, wait, I'm the king. I'm in this position. I can't look like a failure. So I'm going to do whatever I've got to do with or without God. And by the way, that is when you know that you are worshiping an idol. Is when you say, I have to have this with or without God. God, are you coming with me or not? Because I'm taking this. Saul said, no, I have to be king. These people need to view me as powerful. I have to keep up appearance. Saul wanted the reputation without obedience. He wanted reputation without character. He wanted his way, not God's will. And church, this is a frightening place to be. And it should sober us. Saul is looking to his achievement and his appearance to make himself great. And that's what drives him. For we learn that what he lives for is, fourthly, love for the praise of men. He loves the praise of men. You know, the fear and praise of man, we're told in the Bible, is a snare. It may look good at first. People may applaud you and celebrate you. Oh, look at the influence you're having on these other people. Look how good you're doing in your your job right now. Not that doing a good job is bad, but when you live for the appraise of people... You have then moved away from the only commendation and praise that truly matters, and that's from God. And this all comes out more in chapter 15. Let me read it to you. A second mission Saul was given, and he still disobeys. And so the prophet Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because... I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul admits to it. Teaching us two things, two signs that you are in danger is when you care more about appearance than your character and when you're more about having your way than doing God's will. See, Saul knew it was right. He even agreed with it, but he didn't do it. And it is so easy, as Christians, it is so easy to know the right thing, to even agree with the right thing and yet not obey. 
And Samuel is saying here, friends, it's not just enough to know what it is that God wants you to do. You have to actually do it. But there is this great temptation that can take place within the church when we're sitting Sunday after Sunday hearing the word of God preach. You can be in the row saying yes and amen. I agree with that. That is good and that is right. But the question is, are you actually doing it? Are you actually heeding the voice of God? Because something deceptive can take place. Some of us think that if you agree with it, then it's as good as done. Have you ever heard that saying, like, it's the thought that counts? I'm like, well, try that when it comes to your spouse's birthday. I'm like, hey, did you get me a gift? I'm like, ah, no, it was, but I thought about it. I totally thought about it for like five minutes. It's the thought that counts. <laughs> to obey is better than sacrifice. To say just you affirm it is not quite enough. And if we're honest within us, there's this reluctance to actually do what God is calling us to do. You know, when I first read, um, Augustine was one of the early church theologians. And when you think of a theologian, especially the old ones, you think, oh, they must have had, you know, an entirely holy life since their birth. But that is not true. In fact, Augustine had a major lust problem. He couldn't say no to women. And in his book, Confessions, he talks about how he used to pray when he was in that state of life. And I read the prayer, and it just, it sounds like something that that we'd pray today. He said, Lord, give me purity, but not yet. That was his prayer. Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. And how many of us are in that place like, Lord, give me integrity in this situation, but not right now, maybe five minutes. Lord, help me to be an honest person tomorrow. Because right now, lying might advance me. Saul knew the word, agreed with it, but didn't do it. He had to disguise his disobedience with obedience, and he still just wanted to look good in front of other people. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 15, verse 30. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Okay, good, Saul, you're on the right path. He acknowledged, but then what does he say? Yet now, honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. He says, yeah, totally sin. Can you make me look good in front of everybody? That's what he's saying. And notice at the very end of that sentence, he says that I may bow before the Lord your God. He doesn't say my God, but your God. We so easily believe a lie that appearance or achievement can give us what only God can. But what we're being taught here, friends, is that inward obedience trumps outward religion. God is after the heart. But Saul wouldn't listen, and so here's what happened. God rejected Saul as Israel's king. Now, some of you, you read that story and you think, wow, isn't that a little harsh? Like, be honest, like some of us, we read the story and think, wait, isn't that a little harsh that that's the verdict? But here's the reason for it. God rejected Saul as Israel's king because Saul rejected God as his king. God was responding to Saul's bad choice. Saul, if you refuse to be under me, then you cannot be king. And from this point on in the story, we see Saul become slowly dismantled. But it won't have to do with the power of his enemies, but it'll be the direction of his heart that gets him into trouble. And this sets the stage for another king. One that Samuel references, which is David, in verse 14. Samuel says, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after God's own heart. And because you have not kept what the Lord 
commanded you. That verse sets sets the stage for David that we're going to look at next week, but it also gives us a lesson here and now, and it's the remedy for our bad choices. It's what you and I need. You get to this point, you're like, okay, I get it. Like, bad choices, motivations, we need to listen to what it is that's driving us and motivating us, and the Holy Spirit reveals that, but what's the remedy for it? We can't just stop there. How would that be for a Bible study? Just say, here's how you make bad choices, let's pray. Like, oh, church was so good today. (laughs) We don't stop there because there are lessons for us. And listen, these passages, even these warnings, they are not meant to discourage us. They're meant to direct us towards God so that we might experience healing. How? Three ways. First of all, if we want to experience healing for our bad choices, you must listen to the truth of God's word. You must actually listen to the truth of God's word to experience the healing from self-deception and all the choices that flow from it. We need to hear the truth. We may make all kinds of exceptions for ourselves like, oh, we don't want accountability, but think about it. If we all have the capacity to deceive ourselves, then the remedy for it is a perspective outside of ourselves. We need somebody else speaking into our lives, which is why it's so necessary that you actually live the Christian life within community. But most of all, it is necessary that you listen to the truth of God's word. The book of James says in the first chapter that God's word is like a mirror. The reason that you've got to read scripture every day is not only, like Jesus himself said, is it like bread for our souls, but it's like a mirror revealing to us what's really going on in our hearts. It's revealing. But what we do with what we learn about ourselves when we read God's word is so important. Will we listen to the truth of God's word? But it goes farther than that. You also must understand the goodness of God's command. This is where we so often trip up and go wrong and believe lies. We need to understand the goodness of God's command. Now, this is interesting. Saul's life on that day, here in this chapter, whether he realized or not, the only reason that he didn't die that day is because he was waiting in the place that God originally told him to wait. When he said, go here with your little group of of soldiers and wait, the only reason he wasn't destroyed that day is because he was following instructions up to a certain point. What would have happened if he would have just simply obeyed farther? And he was to await further instruction from God. But here's what happened. Saul did not see the goodness of God's command. But you and I today, we don't have to be like Saul. We can look into the goodness of God's command and say, yes, God, I hear your truth and I recognize its goodness. And this is where some heart work needs to happen because some of us might have in certain seasons of life this perspective of God that he's like a cosmic killjoy. Like he's looking down on earth and he's like, who's having fun? Stop them immediately. Angels, (laughs) they're going surfing. Stop the waves. And you're like, that's why there were no waves today. God doesn't want me to have fun. I don't know anything about surfing. I just threw that out there to just connect. Anyway, (laughs) we tend to think God is just like he doesn't want us to actually enjoy anything. But friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. God is the creator of, of all that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful. God himself is the source. And if he's saying no to you today, it's always for a greater yes. 
When he says no to compromise, it's because he's saying yes to integrity. When he is saying no to all the competition that tends to happen within the church, it's because he's saying yes to harmony and community. When he says no to that possibility of pornography and affairs and whatever it might be, it's because he's saying yes to commitment and righteousness. Whenever God says no, it's always for a greater yes. You have to hide that in your heart. Scripture's commands are good. And later on in Scripture, we are told several times that this king that would come, this King David, we're told in this passage that he would be a man after God's own heart. The phrase is famous. What does that mean? It means that this man, David, he saw God's goodness. He saw God's goodness. That when God gave a command, he'd say, well, this might be hard, but I know that it is good. Now, when it says that David was a man after God's own heart, immediately some of us think, well, wait, I don't know if I'm a man or woman after God's own heart. Does that mean that David never sinned? Of course not. We know that David sins. He sins a lot. No, this verse doesn't mean that David never sinned, but when he was confronted with God's command against his sin, he knew that it was right and he knew that it was good. See, here's the difference between Saul and David. Saul sees God only as useful and therefore obedience is optional. And that's how many of us tend to view God. He's useful. Yeah, today, I kind of need God, so I'll maybe say a prayer. I might go to church. I, I, I could use God in my life today. Monday, no promises. Tuesday, maybe. We'll see what happens. So many times, we just simply view God as useful. But if you view God as useful, then obedience will always be optional. Well, I don't really have to obey because I don't really want to follow God. But David, on the other hand, David doesn't see God as useful. David sees God as beautiful. And therefore, obedience is essential and delightful. He says, God is beautiful. And therefore, obedience, yes, this is good and right. And friends, that is the difference between a person who's just a rule keeper and an actual Christian. A moralist or someone that's just trying to keep the rules, they're only obeying out of a sense of duty, but a Christian obeys out of sheer delight. Yes, God, this is what you want for me, and you are holy and beautiful, and therefore obedience is essential because you're holy, but it is beautiful because you're good. God wants you and I to have a heart after his. He wants us to be men and women after God's own heart, not going down the path of bad and destructive choices, but men and women whose heart is after God, who understands the goodness of God's command. But how does that happen? Like reading this, I think I raise my hand and say, okay, well, I, I, I want a heart like this. How does my heart go after God? Well, lastly and thirdly, you must then receive the embrace of God's love. This, my dear brothers and sisters, is what shapes your heart to go after God. We must receive the embrace of God's love. See, verse 14 can actually be translated in two ways. It can be translated a man after God's own heart, but it can also be translated a man according to God's heart, according to God's grace. 
See, King David, as we shall later see, was indeed a man in pursuit. He was a man in pursuit of God. And you read about this not only in the books that we'll be studying this fall, but even the Psalms. Don't you get that sense that that David's in pursuit of God? He's wanting to know God. He's wanting God to work in his life. Why is that? It's because, listen, it's because he knew that God was always in pursuit of him. Listen to the Psalm, Psalm 63. He says, your unfailing love. See, David was one who, who received God's embrace. And so David wrote things like, your unfailing love is better than life itself. Oh, how I praise you. Or Psalm 26, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. Friends, do you see what's happening here? This is so good. It is so helpful. Saul was so afraid to receive correction, but David welcomes it. Why? Because he knew that when God corrected him, it was because he loves him. It was because he loved him. And it is there, friends, that we can find the freedom when you know God's love for you. When you receive that embrace and you just know God's love and his kindness towards you, your heart opens up and you say, okay, God, test me. Try my thoughts. Because I don't want to make bad choices. I don't want to sit here and like justify and perspective switch and all this kind of stuff and cross the the boundaries. I don't want to do that. Search my heart. And I know that as you do, it will not be to condemn me, but to heal me. Search my heart, God. Search my heart. David's not afraid to ask. And this is how our heart begins to go after God. And I want you to take this with you. Your heart will go after God when you see how God's heart has gone after you, when you see his pursuit of you, when you see that that to, to the very end, God will pursue you and pursue you and pursue you in order to show you his love. For though this verse speaks of David, more than that, it speaks of another king. And that king's name is Jesus Christ. And he is the ultimate king after God's own heart. Jesus was fully faithful, offering himself all the way to the point of the cross where he paid the price for our sin, paid the price for all of our bad choices and our bad attitudes. And it is through the faithfulness of our King Jesus Christ that we always have a way back to God. For 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're ever doubting, if God has pursued you, if, you're, if you've ever doubted whether or not God was passionately pursuing you and desiring you, look to the cross. Look to the lengths to which God has gone to rescue you, to save you, and to bring you into his family in the embrace of his arms. All you simply must do is receive it. Say yes to this. See, the lie that we so easily believe is that we need to make ourselves great. I need to have these gifts. I have to have this position. I gotta do this. I gotta do that because I have to be seen as great. Whether it's in my family or my work or this church or this community, we so easily believe this lie that we've gotta make ourselves great. But what God's love in Jesus Christ shows us is this. It turns everything on its head. The way that our whole society functions 
that the God who is great, you know what he did? He became small. The God who is great became small so that he might make you great. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then what? He will lift you up. He will lift you up in due time. Our great God, he narrowed himself. He became small, humbled himself to the point of the cross so that you and I might know what true greatness is, which is obedience to the God who loves us. Saul's life and this section ends with a question mark. But your life does not have to have a question mark hanging over it. Whenever we are tempted to see God's inactivity as him not caring about us or being faithful or his commands as being stifling or irrelevant, listen to his truth. Receive just his goodness. See the goodness of his command that he loves you. And if he's convicting you, it's because of his love. And receive his embrace. Know that he's pursuing you because he wants to change you. And opening ourselves up to this, you will find incredible freedom. And isn't that what we want? Freedom to follow after God, to follow after him with our whole heart because he has chased us with his whole heart. Amen. Father, we ask right now that your Holy Spirit would like a mirror just reveal what's going on in us as a church And in our own hearts as your people. Just sense, Lord, that there are some right now who are on the verge of making very bad choices. And in your love and care, they are here right now. And they are hearing your word. And it is you pleading with them. Stop. Turn. God, I pray that those would turn to you even now. Father, for those condemned because of past bad choices, may they see what you've done for us in Christ. Christ, who was great, became small for us sacrificed himself for us so that we could be forgiven. And Lord, for those who are near, Lord, make us a church. Make us a people who are after your heart because we see how you are after us. May your pursuit of us shape our pursuit of you. And I pray that you do that even now as we respond in worship. Holy Spirit, would you move right now? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.